The workforce gets flooded with a lot of veterans. Veterans do have a hard time translating back into civil society, and especially into the job market. How do you take the skills of an infantryman and translate them to something that corporate America can understand? Welcome back to the Women on the Move podcast. I'm your host, Sam Saperstein. Today, we celebrate Veterans Day, and I'm thrilled to be speaking with Command Sergeant Major Cynthia Pritchett. We discuss her time in the military, the impact she made on education and training, and her firsthand experience with gender integration in the Army. She's had a fascinating career, and I hope you enjoy the conversation. So Command Sergeant Major Pritchett, welcome to the Women on the Move podcast. It is so great to have you on the program with us. My pleasure. First of all, thank you for your long service to our country. We just want to say our appreciation for everything that you've done. I'd love for our listeners to understand more about your background to get to know you. So can you tell us where are you from and what was your childhood like? So I was born in uh, Concord, New Hampshire. I'm the child of Navy parents. Both my mother and father served in the military. Of course, my mother had to get out because back in that day, once women were in the service and they got pregnant, they had to get out of service. So my mom was no longer in service. So moved around a lot, got to live in Hawaii, a lot of different places. And then later, I went to high school in Michigan. That's where my father was last stationed before he retired. I had the fortunate privilege of going to high school in the same place for four years. Unlike most kids who grow up in the military, we tend to transit even in our high school years. We don't stay in one place. So while I was in high school, you know, I was really active in sports, had a scholarship to go to Central Michigan University, also had a scholarship to go to Purdue. But the honest fact is my father and I tend to butt heads a lot. We're very much alike. So I really wanted to stay close to home. He wanted me to go someplace else. We got in a big fight. I didn't want to argue with him anymore. So I opted to go down and join the army. I did when I was in eighth grade, do a, we had to do a vocational notebook. So I did on two things. One, I wanted to be a PE teacher or I joined the military. So the military was not that far out of scope for me. But the reason I joined is really to spite my father. And the best way, I think, despite a 25-year Navy man was to have his daughter join the Army. At the end, I actually ended up outranking him. You know, so the military has always kind of been in our family background. It's an amazing story. It's such a long career. What do you think kept you there for so long? I tell everybody, it's the people. So when I joined, you know, the first two people I met were my drill sergeants. And I knew right then and there, I wanted to be a drill sergeant more than anything. That was after graduating basic training. My next goal was to become a drill sergeant. They became my second family. And I love watching when I was a drill sergeant. I loved watching taking somebody from off the street to see them mold into this soldier and then run into them later on in your career. I mean, I have all kinds of anecdotes where people will come up to me and say, I don't know if you remember me, but you were my drill sergeant in basic training. So it's it's just that connectivity with people and, and watching people grow and exceed even their own expectations. That is terrific. Well, when you joined the service, it was very different from the military we know today. You joined in the Women's Army Corps. And I'm wondering if you can tell us what was that and what was the experience like back then for women? The military, you know, during World War II, we actually, you know, recruited a lot of women so that they could take care of stuff back here at the home front while men went off to fight overseas, though women did also serve overseas. So each of the different branches had their own women's corps, per se. So the Women's Army Corps was the Army's version for all their women service members. But we were not actually part 
of the service. We were actually kind of outside the service. We weren't actually integrated fully into the services. So we trained separately. We were mostly in the predominantly signal field, the medical field, the administrative fields, not what women are doing today. So when I joined in 1973, it was at the tail end of Vietnam. Things were starting to open up a little bit more for women. So I wanted to be in anything but medical and administration. I ended up being in logistics supply because I was able to drive a truck. I'd be out and doing things. I opted to be in the logistics field. So back in the day, so if you think of women today, you know, we carry rifles, we wear fatigues, battle rattle and all that. Back then we were in a blue chambray shirt, blue PT shorts, blue wraparound skirt, white kids' tennis shoes, and bobby socks. That's what we wore. But we also had classes on how to wear makeup, your posture. You know, you were to be a lady. Obviously, the whole makeup and all that stuff never really took. It was just different. And then in 1978, they disestablished the Women's Army Corps. And then the Women's Army Corps was actually became women in the military. So we became women in the Army. So we were actually integrated into the personnel system and into the total Army. So we were no longer a separate corps with a separate director and all that. And that's when things started to change. I was actually a drill sergeant during that transition. So that's when we started doing co-ed basic training. So in 1975 was the first time I picked up a weapon because I was a woman. I didn't have to, but I was like, if I'm going to be a drill sergeant, I wanted to I wanted to run the obstacle course. I wanted to shoot my weapon. I wanted to do all that. That was the biggest transition. And then even though it, w- it was still somewhat segregated, it became the same program. How did servicemen and women deal with that? You know, what was it like on the ground when that first integration was happening for both sexes? I think it was uh, harder for the men than it was for the women. I can remember when we got our first male drill sergeants, you know, they were like, how do I deal with the women? I'm like, well, I'll tell you what, you teach me everything I need to know about being a good infantryman. So good land navigation skills, weapon skills, the basic infantry skills, and I'll teach you how to deal with the women. So something else that stands out in addition to your just being there at such an important change is the value of education that you you placed on yourself as you were going through as a student, but also as an instructor in the military. And you're really seen as a transformational leader for the way that you incorporated critical thinking and analysis into your training programs. What was that experience like? How did your work evolve where you were bringing so many new things into the courses you were teaching? I think for me is I'm a big believer in understanding, you know, who you are. So early on, the Army started doing like the Myers-Briggs, understanding what your personality type is. So I'm an ENFP. I'm not your typical military person that's very structured. I can go from A to Z and I don't have to do anything in between where most people have to do A to get to B, to get to C, to get to D. I'm not like that. My mind doesn't work that way. I mean, if you ask me directions to my house, I would really have to go out and really figure out what the street names are instead of telling you like, when you get to Costco, you'll make a left. And then I don't do the street name. I'm not structured that way. So I think that helped me in understanding that the Army has does two things. We're very good at training. So we have to have rote knowledge, repetitive. We want things to kick in when you're under stress and and, in crisis, you want your training to kick in. But as you become more senior in the military, things go from this rote training and reaction to you have to be educated. So our training takes us all the way through our career to the end. Like when I was in Afghanistan, et cetera, you know, I relied on my training when motor rounds are coming in. Just think you react and you go. When we're trying to deal with some elders in the village or anything that that's not about training, that's about education and understanding the culture and the environment you're in. 
So how do you educate leaders to deal in these very complex environments and not just rely on your just reacting to the situation on the ground? And I think that was brought home to me later, actually, when I became an E9, because I didn't actually go back to school until after I was already through the ranks, where today, if you want to get promoted, you have to have your associates at a certain level. You have to have your bachelors for non-commissioned officers, where that wasn't the case for me. I didn't, I didn't get my bachelors until I had like 30-something years in the service. And then I got my master's after I got out. But it wasn't lost on me of the value of education and what our young soldiers put on the value of education, even as I was a senior leader. And how do you incorporate that? And how do we make the training that we're doing in the military translate into credits in civilian education? So most of all the courses, I mean, I've been retired 11 years now, but even before I left, we were making sure that we were partnering with, with universities to get our courses accredited so that certain modules can get college credit so that you can, you know, that in the second phase of your life, of your career, whether it's you serve 10 or 12 years, three or four, 10 or 12, that these skills transfer and your education transfers. And Command Sergeant Major, let me just ask you this. This Battle Staff NCO course, that was the title of this? Right. So the Battle Staff NCO course is just one, of course, and it's more of a functional course. So it wasn't tied to our promotion progression. So there are certain courses that we have to do that are required to get to your next rank. But there are certain courses that we had in our service that are functional. So based on the job that you're doing. So Battle Staff is about, you know, all the things that takes to manage the battlefield. You know, we're a very analog army for a very, very long time. You know, we do a thing called graphics and overlays, which there's a symbol for every different type of unit. And we used to draw these on overlays on acetate paper with grease pencils and place them or we'd make stickies and put them all over the battlefield. And that's how we've always done it. My point to everybody was, yeah, but we're becoming more automated. And I'm not saying you throw out one in lieu of the other. But what I told them, I said, is we have to make it progressive. So we teach them basic graphics and overlays. We given them a test with and doing it the old analog way. But throughout the course, then we have to transition on what does it look like when we're doing this in the tactical operations center and we're on our computers and we're doing this, you know, with logistics. We still want this one because generator loses fuel. We get hit and everything goes out poof, there's no screen with anything on it, you still have to be able to go and do it the old way. So my point to them was, it's not one or the other. It's about how do we say, okay, here's the old school way of doing it. And then here's how we go. It's just like, it's really great if I have a a GPS and everything in my car, but then when the GPS goes out and then I'm stuck there and I don't know how to read the roadmap, it was trying to get everybody to understand that you don't have to lose one in order to do the other. It's about how do we use them to complement and build on our skill sets? That's a great example of just how technology alone changed in the time when you were serving. Were there other times you saw that really come in where you had to either yourself pick up some new skills or help to train others? Mostly it was just in the education department. I was a firm believer in it wasn't my way or the highway. I mean, if we'd had a task to do, sometimes I'm like, you know what? These young kids have better ideas. Even as a young start first class platoon sergeant, I'm like, okay, we have to get this accomplished in this amount of time. Squad leaders, I'm going to give you an hour to sit down with your folks and let's figure out how to do it. And if you can't come up with anything, then we're going to do it my way. Nine times out of 10, they come up with a way. And, you know, sometimes I look at it and say, well, I'm not even sure if that's going to work. But if it wasn't going to harm anybody, you know, there was no safety issue involved. 
sometimes to me, the best way to learn something is through failure. So sometimes I would let them go, even though I'm like, been there, done that, but it's okay. Let them go ahead. If there's not a time suspense or anything, sometimes it's best to let others, you know, learn through experience. So I'm a very big believer in experiential learning. You know, if somebody tells me, if I tell them whether it's uniform correction, they're like, well, show it to me. I'm like, no, you go show me where it's not, where, where I'm wrong. Show me I'm wrong. Yeah, I can show you where it's at. I know where it's at. If you think I'm wrong, then you go find it and show me where I'm wrong. I love that leadership lesson you're teaching, you know, that taking a risk and encountering failure is a part of that learning experience. And you're providing a safe environment to do that. You know, I watch my niece and nephew sometimes and got to give them space. He's a boy. He's going to fall. He might break a limb. It happens. It's how you handle the loss. So you famously said that your deployments to Afghanistan and Iraq proved what female soldiers are capable of. And I'd love to hear some of your stories about female soldiers that really helped illustrate this point. Well, you know, the two most prominent that come to mind is, of course, Monica Brown and Leanne Hester, one from Afghanistan and one from Iraq. Both women earned the Silver Star for their heroism, one a military police, Leanne Hester, and one a medic. You know, before it was like infantry here, and we had a very linear battlefield. Infantry were up front, and then all the support people were in the back. Now it's a 360 battlefield. You never know where the rounds are going to come in, where the attack is going to come from. So, you know, everybody has to be prepared. You know, all women in the military, they didn't want any special treatment, any special advantage. All they wanted to be was provided the same training in order to that when they deployed or went into these situations, that they were just as prepared and received the same training as their male counterpart. And I think when we had the segregated training, there was a lot of distrust, especially on our male counterparts is like, well, I don't know what they're getting over there because I don't see it. I don't see the training that they're getting. So I don't have the confidence that they're capable. Where in today's army, we train, everybody does everything together. We all go through the same battle drills. We all go to the National Training Center and they're out there side by side doing this training. You know, nobody at that time was looking at, oh my God, is she a woman and she's going to be able to, to lead us? She's barking out the orders. People are responding. The outcome is a good outcome. Today's military has grown up as an integrated military. So, you know, to see the Ann Dunwoodies become general officers, to see me become the SAR major of the Combined Arms Center at Fort Leavenworth, which is a predominantly combat arms, combat service organization, and I'm over infantry, armor, artillery, and nobody bats an eye. Women have this value that they bring and a different perspective than our male counterparts. So you were the first enlisted female to serve as the command senior enlisted leader of a sub-unified combatant command in a time of war. Take us back to the time of that appointment. What was that process like? You just referenced a little bit, you know, as you were achieving different ranks, people may have said things to you or approach you in a certain way. For our senior positions, there's a slating process. So they send out a message saying, here's the criteria. Everybody that wants to apply submits a packet. And in this packet, it lists all your qualifications and everything. And then the commander reviews them and he picks five or six people he wants to interview. And then you interview for that position. So the commander's kind of picking their battle buddy that they want to go through the next three years with or however long the tour is. For all my positions, my first one at CAC, and that one is when we were kind of going through some different things in the military. And I just thought I was the token female getting put on a slate. Who knew I'd get selected? We had just had Aberdeen extremism a couple of years before that. And then there was this big push of why they were not more senior female. So when I got put on that slate, I was actually told to put my packet in. I'm like, I don't even know what Combined Arms Center is, but okay. I researched it, put my packet in, went and did the interview and got selected, which was a total shock. But the commander did say, you know, I selected you because you're a soldier, soldier, not because you're a woman. I'm like, well, that's good because if you pick me because I'm a woman, I don't know if I could take the job. 
Then for Afghanistan, I had served with General Barno on a couple different task force, but I never actually worked for him. So the slating went out, but he had personally called me and said, hey, how are you doing? I'm like, oh, I'm doing great, sir. Congratulations on your third star. He goes, hey, what are you doing right now? I said, well, you know, I'm still the Star Major 11 where General Wallace has asked me to stay on. And I told him, yes. He goes, I was wondering how adventurous you're feeling this summer. I'm like, well, I'm always up for an adventure, sir. Why? He goes, well, I would like you to come and be my Star Major in Afghanistan. I'm like, wow, okay, I need to go talk to General Wallace because, you know, he just selected me. I committed. So I went in to talk to General Wallace. And initially, he had a very adverse reaction. He wasn't very open, I guess, what I would say to my parting. So initially, when I walked back out, I said, hey, is there something going on with General Wallace that I'm not aware of? And they're like, why? I said, well, I was trying to talk to him about something, but he just seemed very put off about it. He goes, what did you ask him, Sergeant Major? I said, well, I wanted to talk to him about this position in Afghanistan that's opening up. He goes, oh, no, once he picks his team, he doesn't like change. I'm like, fair. He asked me to stay. I agreed. So I sent General Barno a nice email saying, hey, sir, really appreciate the offer. However, you know, out of loyalty to General Wallace, I'm going to have to decline. And here's the name of five star majors. I think I'll do a really good job for you. And I'll kind of close the door. And what about my business? And then about a week later, I get an email from General Wallace that says, hey, come see me. It looks like you have a job if you want it. And it turned out that General Barno had emailed General Wallace and said, hey, I know, you know, I approached Cindy to be my star major. Here's all the reasons why I think she'd be a great star major for Afghanistan and why I want her to be there. So I printed the email. I went in to see General Wallace. We kind of sat down in his office and we were kind of like knee to knee. And he's kind of like a grandfather figure. Looked at me. He's like, Cindy, if you don't want to go to Afghanistan, I'll tell Dave Barno I won't let you go. I said, sir, first of all, I love my job at CAC. You're my fourth commander. I've been doing this for almost seven, eight years. However, I'm a firm believer when opportunity knocks, you should open the door. Opportunity knocked. You are very receptive. I closed the door. Now opportunities represented itself. I kind of looked at it as fate that I meant to go do this. I said, and oh, by the way, when we're all retired and your grandkids say, Grandpa, what did you do in the global war on terrorism? You're going to say, I was the fifth corps commander and my soldiers captured Saddam Hussein. I'm going to tell my great niece and nephews that I was the command sergeant major of the Combined Arms Center and I trained majors. While noble is not how I want to be remembered in the global war on terrorism. And when he goes, well, when you put it that way, sergeant major, if you want to go, I'll let you go. And then there was a few conditions that we had a couple projects that I had to complete. He gave me the okay. And then May of 2004, I went to Afghanistan for two years. Oh my goodness. That is a really remarkable story. And thank you for sharing that. And looking back, that you took that opportunity. What did that mean to you ever since and the trajectory of your career? You know, it was actually kind of like my culminating assignment because I came out of Afghanistan in 2006 and then came back to CENTCOM. I was coming back home off cycle. I came back to Central Command Headquarters. I just simply had asked for a year to prepare for retirement, even though I had about two years left on my enlistment because I was approved to 35 years of service. And then the senior enlisted at CENTCOM and General Abizade said, no, we've already talked to Army. We have a couple of projects that I would like you to work on. So you're going to be able to stay till your mandatory retirement date. I'm like, okay, great. That gives me two years to get my stuff together for retirement. Had my retirement papers in hand. And they're like, well, we want to do this thing and study on Afghanistan. The new star major coming in doesn't know a lot about Afghanistan. We, we'd like to keep you on for another year. I said, well, you got to talk to the Army. I'm at mandatory retirement as a senior enlisted. The max we can do is that time was 35. So they talked to Army. Star major in the Army came and talked to me. He goes, do you want to do it? I'm like, well, you know, when a four-star asked you and you're a nation at war, how do you tell people no? So I said, sure. 
I would do it. And then they got a hold of Army, talked to the Sergeant Major of the Army. Sergeant Major of the Army came down, talked to me. I said, look, I'll stay. I'll stay till 40 if you want me to. Just We got to just pick a number. I can't keep doing this one year at a time because I I do have to plan for whatever is next because this is going to end. My military service is going to end. So we just can't, but we can't keep doing it one year at a time. You know, it was actually 36 years, seven months and 29 days, but who was counting? Um, (laughs) They really wanted you to stay. Yeah. So, I mean, I stayed and did those two things because of my background in Afghanistan to help out the command. It goes back to that your capability, your experience is what you bring to the command. They didn't ask me to stay because I was a woman. They asked me to stay because of my experience and my knowledge and my skill set and what I brought to the table. So for me, that was the most rewarding of even everything is being asked to stay on past mandatory retirement to say, you know, we still value what you bring to the table and want you to stay on longer. That was probably the most rewarding out of everything of my service. So it's such a long career. When you think about leadership lessons, what is it that you like to share with others that can transfer no matter where you are in what sector? So I tell people don't take criticism personally when people are providing you feedback. Listen, be open to it. It's not usually not personal. I mean, I think you can tell when things are personal. Take it and try to learn from it. But I also tell leaders that, you know, don't be smothering, you know, don't tell people how to suck the egg. I mean, I had a lot of that early in my career. Not only did you tell me I had to go do something, then you wanted to tell me how I had to do it. And that can be very frustrating, I think, for any person. I mean, okay, you've hired me to do a job. You've told me what you want me to do. Now let me go do it. And that doesn't mean you just let people go off and do things and you don't check. You know, there's always a a time for like, where are you at in the progress, you know, in progress reviews, we have them in the military, I know we have them in private sector, you want to know where you're at in the process of accomplishing something, you know, give them the task and then let them go. And then if they're getting on track, then you provide that steerage to get them back on track. But when people provide you that steerage, don't take it personal, you know, be open minded to what they're trying to tell you. There's give and take on both sides. And then don't be afraid of failure. If you're afraid of failure, then you're not going to grow. Thank you. Thank you very much for all of that. So you've said you've put a fine crack in the glass ceiling for women in the military, which seems like a modest assessment of all your achievements. So do you think now we are closer to shattering more of that glass for women? I've always been asked, when is there going to be a female chief of staff of the Army? When's there going to be a female star major of the Army? My first thing is, you know, sometimes you have to chip away at things. So I interviewed twice to be the star major of the Army. I wasn't selected either time, but that's okay. The first time I competed for star major of the Army, it was like, who does she think she is? And I was a very junior star major. The star major of the Army at the time said, I want you to compete because I want you to understand the process. I don't think you're going to get selected, but I want you to have this experience. I want you to understand what it takes to be the star major of the Army, what the process is and what you have to go through. So it was a developmental experience. The second time I competed, everybody was like, we're pulling for you. It's about time. I'd been at Leavenworth for a little while. A lot of people knew me. In fact, Sir Major of the Army Preston was selected that year. But Sir Major Preston was in Iraq at the time, and he wasn't going to compete. And I'd spoken to his wife. I said, well, you need to tell Ken he needs to compete. So when Ken got selected, I'm like, you owe me big time, buddy. Um, <laughs> Sir Major Preston became our longest serving SMA. But him and I had a very good relationship. In fact, when I got ready to retire, I was just going to do a small ceremony down here at Fort Leavenworth. And Sir Major reached out and said, no, you will come up and we will do it in Washington, D.C. And actually, I was retired 
retired by the old guard in a ceremony that's usually reserved for very senior general officers, the Sergeant Major of the Army, the Chief of Staff, and those guys. So that was a great honor and a validation of my contributions to the military. Congratulations. I just love that story that go for things. You might not get them, but you might learn something in the process. You might get it next time. And you were supportive of other people also going for the same roles. I think that's so interesting. At some point, I look forward to the day that we don't have to say the first female this, the first female that. And the fact that now we've opened everything up where we'd have female infantry soldiers and female artillery specialists. We have female rangers now, women that have completed ranger school. In my lifetime, I don't think I would have ever saw that. And now it's just like, oh, okay, they're going through. As one obstacle is put up, you have to tear it down. And they'll keep putting the obstacles up. We'll keep knocking them down. Eventually, hopefully there won't be any more obstacles. There's always somebody out there that'll take the lead to accept the next challenge and then debunk that Thank challenge. You. I love that. So you have been so active since your military career. You serve on boards of a number of different organizations and you're on the J.P. Morgan Chase Military and Veterans Affairs Advisory Council. And we're so honored to have you as a part of that Can you share the goals of that council and what you're trying to work on? When I first came onto the council, proud to say I've been on it since its inception 10 years ago. How do we help military families and military soldiers? You know, we we had the big challenge with the housing crisis and the mortgages and all that. Jamie Dimon and the and the corporation really wanted to embrace understanding the veteran population. And then, of course, as we come out of every type of deployment or long deployment, we have these drawdown phases. So, you know, the the workforce gets flooded with a lot of veterans. Veterans do have a hard time translating back into civil society and especially into the job market. How do you take the skills of an infantryman and translate them to something that corporate America can understand? You know, between the jobs mission, trying to help out the housing problem, and then just incorporating folks into the firm of J.P. Morgan Chase and their own veterans initiatives, and then into entrepreneurship. So those are the kind of the big overarching goals. I've watched the Military Veterans Council grow from what it was inception to the jobs market, to we were giving away homes, inculcating them into to the corporation, to now it's much bigger in how to retain those folks. How do we get into the entrepreneurial space and help these veteran entrepreneurs find capital and be successful in that arena? Furthermore, into the retention and into the firm itself. How do we get left to transition so that how do you know what you want to do next? And if you wait till like the three months before you get out of the army to decide what that's going to be, you're so far behind the power curve. You just don't know what you want to do. So the military, all the services try to figure out. So how do we set people up for whenever that period of time is to get out of service, whether it's the end of three years or the end of 20? What are the skill sets you need? You know, I came in where I had a set retirement when I got out. I didn't have to worry in the military about 401k or TSP. I knew when I retired at the end of 30 years, I got 75% of what I was earning at retirement as my pension. Young people today coming in have to understand what the TSP is or the 401k because they now have to contribute. How much do you contribute and how do you do that? Most of us inside don't understand how to do that. Where JP Morgan can help partner with the services and providing that from when you come into the military. I mean, when we first had to do direct deposit, it was like, okay, everybody's going to go down. You're going to sign up the local credit union. You got to get a checking account and deposit. People were like, I'm a young person. I got a checkbook. Well, I got checks. So I just keep writing checks, not understanding that what you write also has to be balanced against what you got in the bank. And people laugh and say, that's crazy. But that was the truth. 
Yeah. Or, oh, and institutions are like, okay, I got a thing. I'll give you a loan. And, you know, kids are going out and buying a Humvee, Hummer, you know, when they can barely put gas in it. You know, this financial education. So, you know, it's the philanthropy part of the firm, but it's also financial wellness, helping the entrepreneurial world. It's about the jobs mission and then also about retention. And then inside the firm, helping people understand you know, in the military, you have a roadmap. You do this, you get to this grade. You do this, you get to this grade. You do this, you get to this grade. In the corporate world, it's yeah. not so lockstep. Right. You know, it's a little more nebulous. And we're all about team. And we're all about talking about the team where we're not comfortable out talking about ourselves, about this is what I bring to the table. This is why I should be the next VP or I should be the next ED or I should be given this promotion. MVA is trying to tackle all of that, also working with your diversity, equity, and inclusion folks. So, I mean, it's the whole package of trying to help veterans understand the corporate world, but help corporate world understand the veterans. Yes. That we are not these foreign entities. You know, when I was in the military, you know, the word civilian was just, oh, that's, that's like a four letter word. I don't want to be called a civilian. People in the military because of various things, you know, the good thing is a lot of good things that veterans do don't make the news. That's right. And my colleague, Mark Elliott, who runs our military and veterans affairs group is a really key partner for me. You know, we try to work together for female veterans and their families and do things just as you said, around financial literacy, help with entrepreneurship and their own businesses or getting into the corporate world. And I couldn't agree with you more that, you know, our veterans have such incredible skills and we must as corporations make sure we take those skills in and understand how our own organizations can benefit and change if need to, to really understand what they bring to the table. So tell me about the legacy you feel that you've left on the military and what you want to be remembered by. I think the legacy I've left is to do the best you can do, you know, where opportunity knocks, don't be afraid to open that door and go through it. Don't fear failure, embrace it. Hopefully I was a good role model for not only women in the military, but for my male counterparts. It has been just such an amazing career for you and a second career now for you. So Command Sergeant Major Pritchett, thank you so much for being with us. It is just an honor to speak with you about your service and your leadership and what it meant to so many women and men. Thank you for having me. It's always a pleasure to be with the JP team. So thank you so much. Thank you for listening to my conversation with Command Sergeant Major Pritchett. It was an honor to speak with her and learn about her time in the service and women's advancement in the military. Her leadership lessons are applicable across all industries, particularly her advice on being open-minded to feedback and to taking risks. On this Veterans Day, I want to express a sincere thank you to Command Sergeant Major Pritchett and all of the brave men and women who dedicated their lives to military service. The mission of Women on the Move is to help women in their professional and personal lives. Our goal is to introduce you to people with great ideas, inspiring stories, and a passion to make a difference. If you enjoyed this episode, please rate, review, and subscribe so you won't miss any others. For J.P. Morgan Chase's Women on the Move, I'm Sam Saperstein. J.P. Morgan Chase Bank N.A. is a member of the FDIC.